This week, sex more complex than you think. The idea that you can be more than just M or F still hasn't really caught on. And the world's most unexpected biodiversity hotspots are museums. Well, yes, I've always liked to say that collections are the last sort of great frontier of exploration. Plus, how increasing winds could cause coastal dead zones. This is The Nature Podcast for the 19th of February 2015. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. First up, Noah Baker isn't afraid to talk about sex. I grew up being told there were boys and there were girls, and working out which one you were was as simple as just having a quick peek between your legs. I knew that as you grew older, there were a few changes and that sometimes people weren't entirely happy with the gender that they were, but as a rule, your sex was simple, boy or girl. But this week in Nature, Claire Ainsworth has written a feature explaining that it's not actually as simple as that. She's come into the studio to tell me a little bit more. Hi, Claire. Hi, Noah. Lovely to meet you. So how many sexes are there? Well, it's not so much how many sexes are there. It's the idea that sex is much more of a spectrum than we used to think. Now, while most people fall into being either male or female, there are some people who don't fit easily into either category. Uh, These folks are called either intersex or to use the sort of medical term, differences or disorders of sex development. Um, Within male and female, however, there is a much greater variation than people used to think, and that's what scientists are finding out right now. And when you mention this spectrum, you're not necessarily talking about gender identity here. It's not just what, what gender or what sex someone associates with. Yeah, so it's not identity. We're talking about all sorts of things relating to physical sex. So your anatomy, uh, your physiology uh, and your cells, um, you know, how you're made, if you like, rather than the, the gender that you feel yourself to be, which is what we mean by gender identity. And this spectrum of sexes, tell us a little bit more about what happens at the sort of the, the upper end of that range, the more extreme cases. Okay, well, there are cases where children are born uh, where you honestly cannot tell just by looking straight away whether they're, they're boys or girls. I guess the most extreme example is ovotestis, so where someone has a mixture of both male so testicular tissue and female ovarian tissue. There are others, for example, where your sex chromosomes don't match your anatomy, and that's quite interesting. So, for example, if you're someone who's got two X chromosomes, yet somehow you've got a little bit of the Y stuck on it, you actually develop as a male, even though your chromosomes say that you're, you're female. And you give one example at the beginning of this feature of a, of a woman in her late 40s who's just gone for a sort of a, a relatively standard scan with her third child. And she got some pretty exceptional news. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So this was a, a, a lady uh, came to have an amniocentesis test because uh, she was an older mother to test the baby's chromosomes. Uh, so the doctors did the test and they found a little quirk on one of the, the baby's chromosomes. It was probably nothing, but they just wanted to, to follow it up. So they tested the mother's chromosomes. And what they found was really something quite remarkable. They tested her blood and found that I think uh, about two thirds of her blood cells were XY and the remaining were XX. And it just goes to show that sex is much more complicated than we think. The idea that just having a Y chromosome makes you a male is too simplistic. And the idea that everyone has all the same chromosomes in all of their cells, that they're uniform, isn't true. 
So that's called chimerism, and it's a fairly rare case. But there are other forms of chimerism which are actually much more common, if not ubiquitous. Yeah, well, the first thing to say is we're not entirely sure how prevalent chimerism is. I mean, there have been cases, other cases, just cropping up when people go for a blood test and it comes back, they're actually chimeric. But there is a much more common form of chimerism called microchimerism that normally arises during pregnancy where the fetus exchanges some of its cells with its mother. So some of its stem cells cross the placenta into the mother and some of the mother's uh, stem cells cross the placenta into the fetus. And so that means that potentially inside of my body right now are some of my mother's cells? Yes. And uh, do you have any siblings, brothers or sisters? I do, yeah. One sibling, one little sister. Your little sister. Well, if you had older siblings, it's also theoretically possible that actually you can pick up cells from them via your mother. So maybe your sister carries some of your cells. Who knows? And so if inside me there may well be some of my mother's cells, sort of, are they just floating around in my bloodstream? What are they doing? Well, no, not necessarily. Um, there are a number of studies that show that these stem cells colonise a tissue and they acquire the specialised function of the tissue that they go to. So in mouse studies, they've shown that actually these chimeric cells do differentiate, as it's called, or specialise and form neurons. So they're doing something and they're doing something very interesting. And there is some evidence to suggest that these cells could possibly make that tissue more or less prone to diseases that are more common in the sex of the person they came from. So there are sexes here on the chromosomal level, on the cellular level, on the anatomic level. And yet, societally, we have this binary sex definition. You know, how do you think these two things are going to interact? Well, it's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult question. So one of the first things anyone asks when they hear someone's had a baby, is it a boy or a girl? And our entire legal system is based around the fact you've got to have M or F on your birth certificate. Now, 100 years ago, that had a much more profound effect on your life than it does now. But even so, uh, today, there are still effects like, you know, what schools can you go to? What toilets can you use? Although society has become more accepting of the idea that, you know, people's sexual orientation is more flexible or their gender identity is more fluid, the idea that you can be more than just M or F still hasn't really caught on. Claire Ainsworth talking to Noah Baker. Claire's feature, Sex Redefined, is at nature.com slash news, and it's free to read. Coming up in the research highlights, mega droughts in the US and a very rare interbreeding event. Plus, I take a tour of the Natural History Museum's Beetle Collection, and it's massive. But first, you know about the most dramatic effects of climate change. Rising sea levels, melting polar bear homes, that sort of thing. But one lesser-known effect of climate change, an increase in coastal winds, could lead to mass die-offs in some of our most important marine ecosystems. Sounds bonkers, I know. But to understand the link between wind and oceanic dead zones, you've got to know a bit about the system. At coastal regions, there are these oceanic currents that act like spoons in a mixing bowl, stirring up deep nutrient-rich water. They're called coastal upwelling systems, and they're driven by coastal winds whipping away the surface water, which is replaced by nutritious water from the deep. This upwelling is essential for fisheries and marine ecosystems. Global warming's predicted to increase these winds and therefore increase the upwelling of nutrients. More nutrients sounds great, but you can have too much of a good thing. Too much nutrient-rich water means more food for plankton, which are eventually decomposed by bacteria, and that uses up oxygen. This lack of oxygen, or hypoxia as it's called, starves the life in these regions. So there you go, increased winds could equal oceanic dead zones. 
Daiwei Wong from Northeastern University in Boston was part of a team that has modelled how these coastal winds which drive the upwelling are set to increase over this century, and it looks like things are going to get intense. Is there evidence that these winds have increased? So actually there has been disputes about historical upwelling trends because not all coastal wind observations agree with each other. A recent paper in Science attempted to reconcile different findings by combining the data from all available studies. What they show is there was indeed a tendency for upwelling favorable winds to increase during the last 60 years, except for the west coast of North Africa. Now, these are all historical studies. What we took is a complementary approach by looking at the future projection of the coastal upwelling. So let's get some figures on this. You made predictions as far forward as the year 2100. What does the picture look like then, assuming your models were correct? So by the end of the 21st century, the coastal upwelling season near the eastern boundaries of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans will start earlier and later and become more intense at high latitudes. If these coastal upwellings did increase, what would the impact be on the ecosystem? If you look at locally, the increase can actually enhance productivity. More upwelling will bring more nutrients to be consumed by more phytoplankton. But on the other hand, too much intensive upwelling may also create oxygen-poor conditions, which can suffocate marine organisms. This actually happens before in the last maybe 10 years off the coast of Oregon, as a result of intensive upwelling, there have been observed massive die-offs because the low oxygen content over there. So what on the face of it sounds like quite a good thing, increasing the nutrients that feed the basis of this food chain, actually might lead to widespread dead zones. Exactly. The, the dead zones will happen near the seafloor where the decomposition of the remains of the marine creatures um, take place. Is there total consensus on this? I mean, it sounds like a really hard thing to model. Presumably, nutrient upwelling is to do with more than just these winds. Oh, exactly. So our study has only looking at the wind because wind, as I said before, wind is pretty much the engine of the entire nutrient cycling. But there are also other factors. For example, we know that the warming will basically increase what they call the stratification of the ocean, which means the surface of the ocean will warm more than the depth of the ocean. That will prevent cold and nutrient-rich water from being upwelled. What are we going to do about it? How do these findings help us combat these problems that we foresee? Our results suggest the effect of climate change on upwelling will be both significant and also spatially variable. So some regions will probably see more increase than others. Therefore, this hotspot, if you will, should be actively monitored in order to inform effective and adaptive management of fisheries and coastal ecosystems under changing environmental conditions. Do you think most people even have considered this effect of upwelling and the nutrient cycle? Uh, I don't think so. Um, they are not as dramatic, as, as graphic as other climate impact, like maybe the extreme weather or maybe the melting of the ice you know, with, with a polar bear on top of that. 
So, yeah, I don't think this particular phenomenon has grabbed the public's attention very much. But do you think it's just as important? It is definitely important for the coastal ecosystem in those areas and also fishery. As we mentioned in the paper, those are small regions actually cover less than 2% of the ocean area, but they actually produce more than 20% of global fish catches. I presume that's a billion-dollar business. So even though on the global scale, this phenomenon is actually happening quite locally, you might say, it's happening in a locale, which is hugely important for our food supply and biodiversity. Yeah, I think it will definitely have an impact, uh, first of all, to the local fishery and the ecosystem management, but also maybe cascading to the global scale. That was Dai Wei Wong from Northeastern University. Now it's time for the best science from elsewhere. It's the research highlights. Here's Noah Baker. Two species of fern that diverged more than 60 million years ago have interbred. That's a bit like a human interbreeding with a lemur. It's the longest known evolutionary gap in plant or animal hybridization. Usually after this amount of time, species can't crossbreed. But these ferns might evolve and diverge more slowly than other plants, in part because they're able to fertilise over long distances, so they don't develop such potent geographical barriers to getting together. The paper is in American Naturalist. The US must brace itself for droughts that could last decades, suggests a new climate study. Within the next century, the US Southwest and Great Plains could be gripped by mega-droughts. The drying could be worse than an event that helped collapse an ancient civilization. A US team compared a thousand years of North American climate history with lots of models of the future, focusing on soil moisture. They predict that the years 2050 to 2100 might be the driest, but exactly when the drying might start is the team's next project. More in the journal Science Advances. Thousands of species are threatened with extinction and many more have already been totally lost. But precious samples of at least some of these creatures remain in museum collections around the world. Among the vast collection at the Natural History Museum in London is a stuffed giant panda, a dodo skeleton and some South American beetles brought back by Darwin. Safe and sound behind cabinet doors, you might think. But museum collections are threatened too, by staff cuts, budget squeezes or just neglect. They have much to teach us about species diversity and plenty of future value, as I discovered when I went across town to meet Max Barclay, the curator in charge of nine million beetle specimens at London's busy Natural History Museum. So, what can I show you? Well, you can show me the relative quiet of your uh, beetle collection as opposed to this frantic main hall. I think you'll be surprised how peaceful it is. already see so many caverns with uh, coleoptera. So if you look down that corridor, you can see there's 22,000 boxes of beetles there. Wow. And um, the collection goes back to the 1600s. It goes back to the voyages of Captain Cook. It has the material collected by Charles Darwin on the Beagle voyages. It has the material collected by Alfred Russell Wallace in the Malay Archipelago. 
and it has material collected by myself and my colleagues just in the last couple of years as well. And we've got a few examples of it. Mm. I just happen to have these things out from recently. Yeah, really, this isn't for show. You genuinely were researching. Genuinely had these out. This is part of Darwin's collection. Wow. And when Darwin came back from the Beagle Voyages in the 1830s, he was only a young man, and he gave his collections to the nation. And um, he wasn't particularly famous then, so his collections were just incorporated into the main collections. And he brought us about 8,000 beetles. And he was finding things that people, in many cases, haven't found since. For example, we had an Argentinian scientist here not very long ago who was interested in a large species of beetle that had been very, very common in an area which is now occupied entirely by Buenos Aires, and uh, the beetle is probably gone. And the only beetles of that species that have been collected are in European museums. And so, some of these must have made Darwin, I mean, he was probably used to collecting things, but they jump out of its skin. This one's four inches long and it's got a wingspan of, what, three inches? Well, that's, a, yes, a rather impressive beetle. It comes from Chiloe Island off the Chile coast. Have you always had that feature about you as well? Did you collect a lot of beetles when you were younger and... Oh, yes, yes, on? yes, but I didn't come up with any world-breaking theories, but, you know, yeah, I collected a few beetles when I was young, and those are in the collection here as well. Oh, they're here? Oh, yeah. Can I, you I, show I, me the first ones you collected? I could probably find you some beetles I collected when I was a teenager if you really wanted to see Yes, that. please. Now, this is the challenge, of course, when you're managing a collection like this, is um, finding a way to the right drawer out of 22,000. Uh, <laughs> now, where are we? This is British hydrophilidine. This must have been exciting to have collections that you picked up yourself in. Uh, well, I remember you know, actually collecting these beetles. So, wow. this is the stag beetle. It's Lucana cervus, the largest beetle that lives in the British Isles. They're very regal looking, aren't they? Oh yes. And I still remember that night. It was like the first of July, sometime in the eighties, and um, picking up that specimen, which was flying out of somebody's privet hedge. They've got this beautiful burnished look. Their bodies are almost mahogany, their shells. The things I've collected are just a drop in the ocean, but I have been on various tropical field trips and come up with um, relatively uh, large numbers of species, including new species. We find new species relatively often in the tropics. And in the collections? Well, yes, I've always liked to say that the collections are the last sort of great frontier of exploration. I mean, what I'm trying to do, or what we're trying to do here in collections management, is to lay down an archive of biodiversity for future generations. So how many species have you, do you think you and your colleagues have found in a collection like this, which admittedly is massive? I mean, recently one of my colleagues recurated or went over a collection of about 2,000 species, and he found about 200 species that we didn't know we had. So we're looking at, there may be a hidden 10%. So if we opened any one of these cabinets, you know, something, one that people haven't had time to look at for a while. Oh yes, that's right. You never know what you're going to find. I love the smell. There's some kind of mothball oh, smell. Yes, it's yeah. mothballine. That's right. And these are the red labels here. And the red labels indicate the types of the new species. So um, I don't know if you know about uh, Vladimir Nabokov, who wrote Lolita, the uh, Russian-American writer. He was an entomologist. And he famously used to say that he would have traded all his success in literature for the life of a museum curator. That was his sort of his lost dream that he never quite fulfilled. And he wrote a poem about type specimens, and it has the closing sentiment. It says, uh, dark paintings, thrones, and stones that pilgrims kiss, and poems that take a thousand years to die. 
just ape the immortality of this red label on a little butterfly. So you know. For him, the, the red label that indicates a new species, he will be the first person that has ever actually seen that insect. What's the situation now with how, with, with the resource that's devoted to looking after the, these kinds of collections? Well, we obviously don't have the staff that we used to have in the 19th century. But we are very lucky in this institution that we have enough curators just about to keep the head of the collections above water. And as I say, we've got 400,000 species represented. We have 200,000 of them here in the collection. You know, forget the Amazon. This is a biodiversity hotspot, isn't it? Exactly. Natural habitats, as they exist today, are much, much less diverse, and there are much less of them than there were when I was born. So every single beetle, there's 400,000 kinds of beetle, every single one of those has evolved as a solution to some or another evolutionary problem. And so we're sort of setting out a catalogue of potential solutions to how to live on this planet at its most diverse. That was Max Barkley at London's NHM. Finally this week, it's the news chat, as always, and Davide Castelvecchi, online news editor, joins me in the studio. Now, first, languages. We're going to talk about the origin of Indo-European languages. They are a giant group of languages um, that, as the name suggests, cover a lot of the Indo-European continent. Right, stretching from, from all of South Asia to all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And there's as many as 3 billion people who speak an Indo-European language. And the origin of this group is somewhat debated, isn't it? What do we know about the current hypotheses? There are two main hypotheses. Both of them say that the languages came from somewhere east of Europe. One leading hypothesis is the Anatolian hypothesis that said that uh, there was a migration from the Middle East around 8,000 years ago that brought a lot of people from, from the Middle East together with their, their traditions and their languages. And the same would have happened eastwards toward India. There's another hypothesis, which is that the languages would have come from a little bit farther north, from Eastern Europe, from what is now, uh, I guess, southern Russia and Ukraine. And this is what the, the latest study seems to support. Right, so this is the news. There have been not in fact one but two studies out this week. One of them is about ancient DNA. What does ancient DNA have to do with language? Well, the, the idea is that if you can trace migrations and you know where people migrated to and what languages are present there now, then you can presumably also kind of reconstruct how the languages spread. This is a new study by David Reich and his group over in Harvard, and they do a lot of ancient DNA work. They've now got, it's an amazing number, isn't it, of sequence, DNA sequences from ancient humans. Yes, it used to be newsworthy when you could get the DNA from one, say, mummified human and, and analyze it and reconstruct its genome. And now they've looked at the bodies of 94 individuals who lived across Europe from between 8,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago. And what do they conclude then on the basis of the DNA evidence they found about where these languages came from, where they originated? They found that there was a, uh, an ancient people called the Yamnaya who lived, uh, like I said, in, in Russia and Ukraine around 5,000 years ago. And they found that they were uh, probably the direct ancestors of another group that existed in northern Europe, a little bit farther west, northern Europe around 
4,500 years ago. And we know that those people li uh, who lived there um, were basically the ancestors of Germanic tribes and they, we know that they spoke Indo-European languages. So before, before you're sort of the mother of your mother tongue, before Latin, before ancient Greek, before any of this stuff, uh, there was this migration of people from Western Russia, essentially, and Ukraine into Europe who were speaking these languages, this group of languages. Right. And the idea is that perhaps the Yamnaya spoke what could be uh, uh, like the mother, like you said, the mother of all Indo-European languages, although the evidence is a bit less uh, conclusive in that respect because it could be that the Yamnaya spoke uh, a language that was one branch of the family. So not not one study, but two studies. The other one is not ancient DNA-based, but what uh, what evidence does that bring to this same question? The other study... It dated the origin of uh, basically the, the root of the Indo-European family to around 6,000 years ago, which would be in line with this Yamnaya hypothesis. Whereas the earlier estimates were that the, the earliest origin uh, of Indo-European languages was 8,000 years ago, so much older. All right, so from some languages that some of them seem very familiar, some of them don't uh, in that language group, we're going to a very familiar planet, but we're looking at it in kind of a different way. Um, tell us about this next story, which has to do with Jupiter. We are looking at Jupiter almost like with the eyes of aliens. We've been looking at Jupiter uh, since Galileo with, with the first telescope, but we've always looked at Jupiter as it looks from Earth. And now uh, researchers have thought, well, what if we look at Jupiter as it would look to people who live on a different star system? And this is kind of a control study, isn't it? Because people keep looking now at lots of data coming back from exoplanets. So these are they're in other faraway solar systems. And in order to have a measure of what exactly they look like and what their atmospheres look like, it would be really helpful if we knew what Jupiter would look like if it was actually there. Exactly. And the, the idea is to cross-check the way that we look at exoplanets, at these distant planets, by basically looking at Jupiter as if we were looking at an exoplanet. When we look at an exoplanet, we can't directly take a picture of it. All we can do is look at how the light of the star, of the star that it's orbiting, changes when the exoplanet crosses along the, the direct uh, line of sight between us and the star. We usually discover exoplanets because we know that the star dims a little bit when that happens, but also, in some cases, we've seen a slight change in the color of the star. That's because part of the star's light filters through the atmosphere of the exoplanet before it reaches Earth. So that can happen because the star, which is the sun of its own solar system, is uh, way away and in front of it passes the exoplanet and then comes us as the observer. And of course, that's not the order that we are in compared to Jupiter, is it? Because we've got the sun, then us and then Jupiter. So we're in the wrong order to, to make that same comparison. How did they get around that in this study? So there was a clever trick. They did the next best thing, which was we can't look at Jupiter in front of the sun, but we can look at solar light sunlight that filters through Jupiter's atmosphere and hits one of Jupiter's moons, in this case Ganymede. So that light then bounces off Ganymede and comes back to, Earth, to us, and we can look at the color, essentially the spectrum of the light, to analyze the atmosphere of Jupiter. Now, we already know quite a lot about Jupiter, obviously, but have we learned anything new about its atmosphere in being able to use Ganymede as this kind of mirror, basically? The study confirmed a lot of things we knew, such as methane in, in the atmosphere, but also found an intriguing and somewhat counterintuitive presence of ice crystals. 
And this was a bit of a surprise because Jupiter doesn't have a lot of water. It's a cold place, but usually not one where you have uh, clouds of ice. Hmm. And does that change how people think about how it was formed or what it, how it's behaving now or any you know, insights into its life? The authors just say that perhaps similarly to what could have caused water to be delivered to Earth, uh, maybe, maybe the same thing happened with Jupiter, namely that comets in the early uh, solar system falling onto the planets uh, delivered some water and then that's how you have some water in Jupiter as well. Okay, Davide, thank you very much. More on both of those stories at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Before we go, I should say that to accompany a series of papers published this week, Nature Video teamed up with an orchestra to explain the epigenome, how changes to gene expression may have wide-ranging impacts. Here's a clip. Just like a Beethoven symphony, a cell's epigenome is complex and exquisitely arranged. Scientists are starting to understand how that arrangement changes in different cell types, during development and in disease. And to find out more about what Beethoven's fifth has to do with the epigenome, check out the film at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. You can also find those papers at nature.com slash epigenome roadmap. Plus, if you haven't found it yet, we've got a new episode of Audiophile, our podcast series all about sound science. The next episode is called Health Under the Flight Path, and it's on the Nature podcast feed and on our website, nature.com slash nature slash podcast. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Bush. <laughs>